You pressed play on this podcast with the click of curiosity. It is another dimension, a dimension of mind, a dimension where nothing is sacred and everything is explainable. You're streaming into a land of both inside and outside of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the midside. Welcome to the midside where we always hope to take down the sheets. I'm your host, Justin M. Lesneski, the hopeful bromantic, and I retroactively and proactively denounce anything anyone has ever said and ever will say on this show, especially, apparently, about the movie Oppenheimer, because apparently that's a, a, a white supremacist patriarchal movie. There's There's been a number of uh, interesting takes about this that movie, and this episode will be focusing on that movie and not the Barbie movie. So, you know, if you're upset because of the approach we always take, William, do you have the drop set up yet? Uh, the heteronormative approach? But let's, yeah. let's take the heteronormative approach here. There you go. So we always take that approach here. So that's why we're focusing on Oppenheimer, apparently, not because Christopher Nolan's a good good director. Or maybe we only think he's a good director because of the heteronormative approach. I don't know. This intersectionality, social justice, critical race approach always confuses me. Anyway, we have more important things going on. Uh, we we finally moved the midside completely out of Southern California. Joining me this trip from a place of harmony, not to be confused with the harmony that's down the street from where I live in, in Kissimmee, identifying as a woman to forgo his white male gay privilege, William Green. Hello, hello. Yes, uh, Remington and I are here. Uh, the house is completely devoid of things because they won't come for uh, about a week or so. And uh, but it's great to be Did a homeowner again. Did you just refer to your furniture as people? You just said they won't come. <laughs> uh, well, I meant the people bringing my furniture. Oh, uh, okay. They will not. Arrive. I thought you were uh, like cursed, like Beauty and the Beast here, <laughs> or like one of the uh, one of the movies that we're watching. Uh, I have detected uh, our previews we're watching. I have detected no ghosts. Um, uh, I have not uh, not detected any homeless people, although there are some uh, in 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 the city, from what I hear. Uh, so far, I've been assaulted with zero uh, pride flags. And there's been no MAGA uh, uh, rallies or anti-MAGA rallies. So I'm, 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 I would say that so far the move is a great success. You, how long have you been there, though? Like a day? <laughs> yes. Yes, 24 hours. I would, have had, I, I would have experienced all those things 24 hours, including a homeless fire uh, where it did <laughs> long, So Okay, that's fair. I will give you that, that you would have experienced all those things in 24 hours. But let's do a weekly check-in on that list you just created. On that checklist you just created. So the theory is in L.A., in Southern California, you would have experienced that in one day. Let's see how long it takes you to experience all of those things in a place of (laughs) harmony. All right, and maybe you moving is why the the farce was kind of sparse this week. But I was able to find some interesting stuff. Uh, You sent a really interesting one about uh, a study about higher education, about the Ivy League. Uh, and then there was some stuff about fast food and some stuff about music. Let's get into it all in Life on the Midside. Take a good look around. Does life really suck? No, we just complain and I hope that this mic goes on. Cause I'm on a roll here. I hope this is making some sense. I hope that you throw up your 
As always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so through Patreon or Locals. Patreon is per episode. Locals is per month. That's the midside.com slash Patreon or the midside.com slash Locals. We accept any and all support, including, perhaps most of all, affirmations. The first thing, William, I wanted to bring up this week that I saw when I was searching through things is that in and out announced a new policy. They sent out an email to their workers in regards to masks. So I want to read a little bit about that. We are introducing a new mask guideline. We Sorry, we are introducing new mask guidelines because... Number matters when you're talking about things. New mask guidelines that emphasize the importance of customer service and the ability to show our associates smiles and other facial features while considering the health and well-being of all individuals. We believe this policy will also help to promote clear and effective communication both with our customers and among our associates. Our goal is to continue to provide safe and customer-centric store and support environments that balance two things that In-N-Out is known for, exceptional customer service and unmatched standards for health, safety, and quality. So they say they're going to update these standards on August 14th. That's when they go into effect. And here they are. No masks shall be worn in the store or support facility unless an associate has a valid medical note exempting him or her from this requirement. Associates who wear masks for medical reasons must wear a company-provided N95 mask. Note, a different type of mask may only be worn with a valid medical note exempting the associate from the N95 mask requirement. This policy applies to all store and support associates working in Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, Texas, and Utah, except associates who are required to wear masks or other protective gear as part of their job duties, e.g., Patty room associates, lab technicians, painters, etc., etc. All associates, regardless of whether or not they are required to wear a mask, are expected to maintain our grooming standards, proper personal hygiene, and cleanliness to ensure a safe working environment for all. So, William, is this mm-hmm. going to make you no longer eat at In and Out? <laughs> I ate at In and Out yesterday. Uh, did anyone have a mask on, even though it's before August 14th? I did not see a single mask. But you know what, Justin? I have seen a lot of masks in places uh, still. So uh, California, they're still pretty prevalent. So I think this is probably a needed policy. I, I can't imagine they are having this problem in Texas, though, Justin. What do you think? In and out, I don't know, because it is a conservative company. The people who run it, who own it, are conservatives. However, I will say, I did have some friends visiting this past week to go to Disney World, and we did the whole, mm-hmm. you know, get to Disney at quote unquote rope drop, or you know, a little bit after it opens, you know, opens at eight, get there at eight ten type deal, just because of yeah. the transportation in. So and and stay till clothing, clothing, closing. Um, and I did notice something. The Majority of masks I saw were worn by employees. Now, I'm not saying every employee had a mask, but I would say 90% of the masks I saw were on employees and about 35% of the employees were masked. And I was thinking, William, and I think this is related to what In-N-Out is saying about 
customer service and communication and seeing smiles, which, by the way, do you remember during the pandemic how I made that argument about masks, how they're dehumanizing because you can't see people's expressions? So who was ahead of this by like three years? Yeah. Oh, that's right. The midside. It was me. Uh, And I had a similar thought about the Disney employees. At what point, if the majority of masks are worn by the employees and not the customers are the employees unintentionally communicating or subconsciously communicating that the clientele of the business are unclean and dirty. And I think this goes back to William, the uh, interpersonal hostility. Yeah, you're a that we've talked about here. Those those customers right. aren't customers, they're threats to my health. Right. And in which case, why are you working there if they're a threat to your health? I would not work at a place where I thought it was a threat to my health. Yeah, it's pretty crazy that uh I I can think of uh I can think of one employee we had that kind of held out the most with the mask. Um, and I remember having to set a policy early on that if you were going to wear the mask when they were optional, you must wear it or not. In other words, no chin diaper, right? It either yeah. has to be completely on or completely off. And I remember I did having see to do some that of that. thinking, I I remember thinking like, why are you even bothering? And why do I have to make this policy is because it technically is very unclean. Like we talked about this when the mask mandates first started happening, like they are very, very dirty. And in a food preparation environment, that's a a liability, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and I did see some of that. This is great. I I, I think this is great. It's kind of sad that they have to make a whole policy, but it makes sense, you know? Well, yeah, and that's that's the the, the the two the double-edged sword here, right? On one hand, it's kind of sad they have to make a policy. However, they are acknowledging reality with this policy. This policy is focusing on what should be normal and making that the policy rather than the current policies of a lot of companies and the policies we dealt with during COVID, which was making the abnormal the normal. So yeah, it's, and it's I'll, I'll, go, I'll go a step for, for, further, which we also called early on in the midside, that masks do nothing for respiratory viruses. And yeah. so focusing it back on if you need it for your medical reasons, then yes, use it, right? Yes. That, that should have well, been the thing all along. Right. And that's the thing I like, right? We talked about that early on where the response to COVID was being treated collectivistically. And we asked where the line is. Where is the line between individualism and collectivism in an outbreak? Because the argument was being made, oh, well, we had to have a collectivistic response where everyone's a threat because they threaten the collective because somehow there's a person they could affect. Whereas rather worrying about your own protection, how do I protect myself in this situation. So if I'm the more vulnerable one, is it my responsibility to protect myself or is it everybody else's responsibility to protect me? And this policy focuses back on the individualistic side. I love two things about this policy. I love that it says, if you need to wear a mask, 
for medical reasons, you are allowed, but you need a note proving you have those medical reasons. So it's the idea that it has to be science-based because there is a customer service reason, a communication reason for not wearing a mask, and we are not going to punish you for dealing with what you need to personally deal with. That is very... follow the science. Actually following the science here, Fauci. Mm -hmm. And then the, the second thing I love about that is it is providing masks that are actually valid. N95 masks. And that if they want a different mask again, they need to prove that the different mask is what they need. And so I, I Bain think this is, can work at uh, in an outburger. Bane would be allowed. Yeah, I'm sure Bane uh, Also, could, Also, the for, personal grooming thing, that was a big thing, too. People stopped shaving when they were wearing the mask. Yeah. And, well, again, that, with food preparation, that that's not hygienic. Well, right, and that was part of what we talked about as well, is when you have this collectivized response, it makes it so you don't have to take as much effort to take care of yourself because, oh, everyone else is taking care of me, which makes it easier for me not to have to think about what I'm doing. And that's part of the whole wearing a mask thing. Oh, well, I don't have to worry about how I look because I have a mask on. Well, we talk about how that's dehumanizing to other people because you can't see them, but you're also being dehumanizing to yourself at that point because you're not taking care of yourself. So, yeah. uh, you know what? This makes me a little bit more okay having an In-N-Out burger. Yeah. I still think they're overrated. (laughs) (laughs) Let's zoom out a little bit. So one, is this an indicator, like how much of the craziness can we roll back, right? That's kind of like, I think, a, a larger discussion to have as well, right? Like how much of the culture, we, we showed how obedient everyone was, right? We showed how, uh, how uh, the science was used as a hammer to, uh, to beat down any sort of dissent um, and to clamp down on tons of things. And we, you know, with uh, Elon buying Twitter and the Twitter files and, and the, you know, the mainstream media sort of losing ground on controlling narratives, like there's, there's some indicator that we're gaining some of that ground back, Justin, but I worry that it's not going to be enough, right? Uh, is this stuff just, you know, is this, is this all going to happen again? Are we going to have a climate lockdown, right? Or are, are people starting to see this in a more philosophical term? Does that make sense? Like, what does this say for the culture? Yeah, it's difficult because this is a California-based company. And I think that... Um, and it's conservative, it's which is very, like, right. very unique. You know? Right. And, you know, this law doesn't apply to California, or this policy doesn't apply to California. They probably couldn't get away with it in California, right? Look at it. It's Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, Texas, and Utah. And on the other side, now they don't have any stores here. But there's no need for something like this in Florida. Now, I'm not really? sure. Really? I think people... Disney should have that policy. I think Disney should oh. copy and paste this. Oh, completely. I agree with that. I agree with that. But Disney is unique. Disney is unique. And I, I don't want to backslide into the whole discussion we've been having, but we talked about this last yeah. edition where we talked about Disney 
largely trying to cater to their workers who have a different perspective than a lot of people who go to the parks and have made Disney the company it is, especially here in Florida. Right. I, I think Disney is, is is unique in that sense. You don't see it as much at other places. Although I haven't been to Universal since 2020. Well, I haven't been to Universal consistently since 2020. When I went for grad night this year, I don't remember anyone wearing a mask. There were certainly none of the kids and adults who were in the park wearing a mask. I don't remember the employees wearing a mask, but there were so many people in the park that night that that wasn't something I was prioritizing looking at. However, you think it would have stuck out to me if I did? Yeah. The point yeah. being, though, I think what you're asking about with the philosophy is I still think this is a sense of life reaction. And what we're starting to see is uh, we're starting to see that more localized breaking away from everyone else based upon the sense of life. And I mean that, yeah. you know, with the way Florida reacted to things and, you know, the fact that in and out is having this sort of policy. And I mean, look at these states. Arizona's near California. So is Colorado. So is Nevada. Right. Besides Texas, all of these states are kind of more sort of battleground or purplish states. So this needs to be done. So is this a good sign? Yes. I still don't think people are being philosophically minded about this, though. I still think it's, like we said, interpersonal hostility or people who are Mm -hmm. more individualistic. Yeah. Well, then on the other sort of extreme of things, we've got a few stories here about, I don't want to necessarily say interpersonal hostility, but the way of seeing other people as a threat or looking at things as if they're not people's faults. So the first thing I want to talk about is this massive payout, this $1.8 billion payout in the New York City. It's the largest legal settlement in New York City history in regards to a licensing test for teachers that was called culturally biased. So a couple paragraphs here uh, from a Fox News article. And, and William, something I've started to notice, I don't know if you've noticed this, a lot of the farce nowadays is being cataloged by the New York Post and by Fox yeah. News. Yeah. It, it I, makes it kind of tough because I don't want to rely on like quote-unquote right-wing sources for the for the show. Yeah, it's getting tough because I think that the left self-awareness is just not there. So when we pull, we end up pulling, when we, when, when you and I see these stories, if it's coming from a left-wing source, usually the, the story is the farce, right? Like the framing or the narrative that they're introducing yes. is the farce. Yes. Whereas when we pull from the right-wing sources, it tends to be the event itself, right? right. And, and we and see that with the first two stories here, right? The first yeah. one is Fox News and it's the event. And the second one is NPR and it's the framing. Sorry to interrupt. Continue. Yeah, no, I think that, and I think that it's good that we're aware that the, that that this is a, a bias that's in our sources, but it's 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 from the writers themselves, and it's going to be very hard for us to overcome. Because like, when, when's the last time we saw a left wing source where they covered the event as that was farcical? It doesn't mean that the right's not doing farcical things; they do, but they but then when they write it, they end up writing about it in such a crazy narrative way. We almost can't get past that part. Right. Well, right. And they don't delineate between the things such as, you know, the we're going to talk about a Jason Aldean song. They don't delineate between the things that aren't farcical 
that they're turning into farce, such as the way they're approaching Oppenheimer, right? They're trying to turn it into something it isn't. And the things that actually are farcical on the right. So Mm -hmm. they miss a lot of that. And of course, uh, we have to acknowledge that people listening to this are going to have to decide, does this mean we're more right wing biased? Are we actually secret conservatives, secret Republicans? (laughs) And that's why we see it this way, because I can see people arguing that. Oh, well, you think that it's only narrative on the left that's making it farcical. You don't think it's actual farce. But the but the the problem is that criticism is thrown at anyone who is not left of Stalin. So Correct. it's <laughs> and that was actually something uh, in there was one political point at Oppenheimer that I was sort of like, oh, I see where the problem has developed in our country. But we'll get to that when we get to the art section. So I'm going to read a couple paragraphs here from this Fox News article. Approximately. 5,200 black and Hispanic former and aspiring teachers will receive part of a massive legal payout from New York City after court rulings determined their licensing exams violated civil rights. So the first thing, William, before we even continue here, former and aspiring teachers. If you were able to pass the test, do you get the same amount of money and should you get any money? Like, is it is it that the test was harder for you so you get money because the test was harder? I, I don't know. That it, What a weird... Uh, we'll get into it. Read more. Yeah. Like, I would understand if, like, you were denied your entire profession because of the test being illegitimate. But, like, if you're in the profession and pass the test, it's just strange. According to the New York Post on Saturday, Manhattan Federal Court records show that 225 people who failed the liberal arts and science tests used for teacher licensing between 1994 to 2014 had received settlements of at least 1 million. This will be part of the city's larger settlement amounting to more than 1.8 billion, New York City's largest legal payout. The lawsuit, originally filed by four teachers in 1996, claimed the exam was culturally biased in favor of white applicants. According to the plaintiffs, more than 90% of white applicants passed the multiple choice and essay test, while black applicants only passed 53% of the time. Hispanic applicants only received passing scores 50% of the time. William, shouldn't the four teachers and their attorneys who filed this lawsuit have to go back and take introduction to logic? Because isn't this the fallacy of correlation is causation? I, Aren't yeah, they saying I, because I, I of can, someone's I race say I did not follow this case, so I don't know what evidence they used. But just from the news story, where's the Asian um, success rate? <laughs> we don't talk about Asians. You laugh. We don't talk about Murdo. If we're saying it's culturally biased towards one group, then you would expect similar uh, decline in Asian applicants, right? Not passing the test. Yeah. Do you think that? Do you think if if that alone is the logic, they're just using uh, correlation to be the the thing? Like I don't know. Like Justin, there's there's like there's like two big points about this story that that are not even talked about in the story that are the whole that are missing. You know, missing the the forest for the trees sort of thing. We know that licensing and minimum wage are racist policies. And here's what I mean by that: both things were created. When, after slavery, cheap labor was available. 
So all these licensing and minimum wage stuff was to prevent cheaper labor at the time, freed slaves from entering the market. That's it. Yeah. And so if, so that's true that, like, that, yes. that it's, it's true that the licensing requirement is a racist policy. Okay. And it's the, and it's the use of government to exclude people. And it's an example of government getting involved in business and why that shouldn't happen. It's a, it's an anti-free exactly. market policy. Yep. The second thing is though, this is a, another example of collectivism and not, and because of the, the collectivism premise, you miss that first part and you say, well, we're going to look at it collectively and say the test was biased. And when you do that, you miss the second point that I'm going to make, which is this is an attack on meritocracy. And this is something that really gets me riled up. It's an argument I've lost at DEI conversations at different companies I've worked at. I believe in meritocracy. That's how you uh, overcome obstacles. You You treat people as individuals and you judge them based on their individual merit. And now I'm not saying... I'm not. I'm not sure. I could. I, I would want to see the argument about how you make a test that is culturally biased, because, like, it, like I, 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 I don't know whether what that would be even possible. Uh, since well, the, the culture so, that you should be biased towards is towards the culture that you're building in the school, right? So, do you see what I mean? Like, I, I could see where you yes. could say, well, it's culturally biased towards the culture that we're trying to build in this school and trying to instill in the children. And then in that case, like I would be for that cultural bias, right? Right. But their, their argument there is going to be that, well, yeah, the, the problem is, is they're trying to instill a white culture in, in, in the school. Yeah. You know, like being on time. Right. And, uh, what was that? What right. else was white supremacy being on time? Um, individualism individual merit. Sup- yeah. Yep. Individualism merit. Yeah, yeah, but those aren't exactly the things I do want to be biased towards. So you could see my conundrum here, but all I can brush all that aside by just saying it's an attack on merit, uh, meritocracy. Oh, so there's sort of two things in response to what you're saying. Uh, the first is the only possible two angles they could take to demonstrating this test is biased is the content and the methodology. So they could say the content is in a way of expecting them to know things that are important to white culture, but aren't necessarily important to other cultures, so they wouldn't know it. And then, two, methodology, they can say, well, the methodology is privileging a white way of thinking and a, a white way of problem solving. Those would be the two ways they would, uh, would approach that. Any yeah, but both of those have, things are inherently racist, though. Saying that there's a white, white way of thinking... You see what I mean? Like that, that, that implies that there's a, uh, that different races have different methods of thinking, right? Yeah. And that's not, that, that's not, that's not, a, that's not true, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what we always say about collectivism, right? And social justice is collectivism and it, it's necessarily racist, right? That's what people miss yeah. about, what they miss about all this is the issue is not the racism. The issue is the collectivism. It's just we've decided nowadays the worst things anyone can be is a racist. Where actually it's much worse to be a collectivist than a racist. And if you're a collectivist for long enough, you will become a racist by accident. The, again, interpersonal hostility. But this all goes to, William, the second thing I wanted to say to you, which is your point about meritocracy. And my question is, whenever you get licensing involved... Or, as I was saying, whenever you get government involved in the free market, is it necessarily going to destroy 
meritocracy. So is this whole lawsuit and payout not just a result of the government being involved in education? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, removing government from education would get rid of this problem, right? I mean, in this and getting rid of licensing, all licensing and minimum wage uh, would get rid of uh get rid of everything else. Right. So, right. Like it, it, the, right, the, the markets of, yeah, the market here will reward meritocracy in the long run. Right. The, the it, problem though, is the social justice collectivist people, critical race theorists are going to say that the culture will be oppressive. So our argument is that the market will decide which schools can stay open and which can't. So schools will hire different teachers based on different standards and parents will decide to send or guardians will decide to send their kids to the school that they most want their kid to be taught at, their student to be taught at. Now, the argument against that is going to be that, oh, well, the culture is just going to continue in its white supremacist, white privilege roots, and that's going to be unfair and oppressive. So we need a mediator to come in. And now they get government and we get back to all the points you were making, William. Okay, so when we have these different perspectives, when we have these different perspectives, I think it's important to realize at this point, let me ask you, William, do you think that that divide I just explicated, do you think there's a way to bridge that divide? I don't know. I think it, 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 it involves having to get people to think in philosophical terms, and not right. everyone's going to do that. Um, but you can get enough critical uh, people of a critical mass to, to do that. And I think that's when the culture shifts. Right. So, right. and we can look at that with our next bit of farce yeah, here, the Jason exactly. Aldean song. So this NPR article says how Jason Aldean's try that in a small town became a political controversy. And I think exactly what you're saying here, William is relevant. Exactly. What, you, what you're saying is relevant here. And what I mean by that is you either look at the song and the lyrics philosophically or you have a sense of life reaction. Now, if you have a sense of life reaction and you're coming from the collectivist, critical race, social justice perspective, you're going to see things in the way that is being said here. But if you think about it philosophically, you're going to understand what's actually being said here. So... The article states, Country Music Television says it will no longer air the music video Try That in a Small Town by Jason Aldean after critics of the video said it contained lyrics that glorified gun violence and conveyed traditionally racist ideas. So, Aldean said the song represents an unspoken rule, quote-unquote, for those raised in small towns, and here's the quote, we all have each other's backs and we look out for each other. And it says he's not credited as a writer for the song as has been the case for most of his 27 hit signals. Do you, do you like that little shade they threw at him there? Yeah. Yeah. As if like any of the pop artists that the left celebrates and loves like Lady Gaga, maybe she's not a good example because she is trained in Juilliard, but you know, most of these people do not write their own songs. Uh, right. So, but him not taking credit is actually makes me uh, more interested in him in a way. 
right? Because right. most of those people just get their name on there so that they can get the money, right? Yeah. So here are some of the lyrics that they're objecting to. Well, try that in a small town. And we're talking about try that in a small town. Like the first verse is like sucker punch somebody on a sidewalk, carjack an old lady at a red light, pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. You think it's cool. Well, act a fool if you like. Cuss out a cop, spit in his face, stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think you're tough. So he's explicating behavior that the town would find morally objectionable. And then he says, we'll try that in a small town. See how far do you make it down the road. Around here, we take care of our own. You cross that line, it won't take long for you to find out. I recommend you don't. So, William, obviously the lyric they're objecting to there is, around here, we take care of our own. They're going to see that as a dog whistle for white supremacy. But correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not just white people who grow up in small towns, right? (laughs) <laughs> wait uh, is small towns uh on the white supremacy list i didn't know uh yeah there's lots of small towns that contain uh no white people and uh listen to country music so uh he could be talking about those as well well and that's you just brought up something else that i was going to pivot to eventually the idea that country music is coded as right wing and as white supremacy that's part of the problem here oh man if it's now not this article, uh, even in LA, if it's not ranchero music, what are the Hispanics listening to? Country. So the article continues. At least the ones I've dated and and met and hung out with. Aldine ups the vigilante ante. The vigilante ante. <laughs> Get it? This 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 writer thought was this who's, who wrote this? Does it does it say? Yeah, Emily Emily Olson. Not Emily Olson, who used to be on Hannah Montana, but Emily Olson <laughs> uh, really thought she was clever. Ups the vigilante ante by why would she just not say ups the vigilante? Like, isn't that funnier than vigilante ante? Yes. Well, maybe right. reading versus uh, versus talking, but uh, even then, I would agree with you. By bridging the second course with a reference to gun rights, singing, I've got a gun that my granddad gave me. They say one day they're going to round up. Well, that shit might fly in the city. Good luck. Try that in a small town. So they're saying that this is glorifying gun violence. So, William, at what point does this say, like, oh, man, it's awesome if you shoot someone? Like, as you said, are they philosophically thinking about what it means to glorify and what violence is? I, I'm confused because every rap song that I listen to that's not about uh, a wet-ass pussy it involves gun violence. Is, is that just out of vogue now? Are we, are we taking that? I mean, MTV doesn't even show videos, but uh, are we going to not show those videos anymore? Yeah, and I, th- I think that's the, the, the disturbing part, right? The disturbing part is that... Country music television bought into this and caved to this. Who is watching country music television? Is there anyone? Is This is such a, like, in a way, it's a non-story. I don't know. Anyone who's going to listen to country music, aren't they just going to watch it on YouTube like everyone else does? Watch the music videos on YouTube? Well, that's the point, right? That's the point is... It's the older generation, presumably, right? Older people are presumably the people still watching television. Or 
cultures where they're not so dependent on YouTube and the, the internet and things like that, where they still watch television. So I would argue that people online more and where we see the most social justice arguments is online. So this is directly targeting the people who aren't in line with what they're supposed to be in line with. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it's a non-story because this is a major broadcast network, country music television. That's true. That's an institution in America. Whether you like country music or not, it is an institution in America caving to this. Well, I think, I think like the last story, what I connect this to is the attack on heroism and heroes. And here's how I'm going to try and do that. So if you think about the disdain for people standing up for their values and, and that sort of moral fortitude, that, that self-esteem that comes from that, there's just a constant attack on that kind of culture. And this one, you know, maybe the song's not the best representative of that sense of life, but at the sense of life level, isn't that what this song is, Justin? Is talking about standing up for your values. And that's why this song is triggering. It's not because of gun violence or white racist whistles or anything like that. It's that this person is tapping into that sense of life of of taking care of your own, right? And that's something we can't have in in, in today's collectivist culture, right? Well, first of all, you can't that. have your own, and then and then second of all, you can't be a hero, right? Heroes are are evil, right? He tweeted that he didn't tweet it as, and I don't mean this insultingly. Uh, he didn't tweet it as didactically as you did. He tweeted it very sense of life. He said, try that in a small town for me refers to the feeling of a community that I had growing up where we took care of our neighbors, regardless of differences of background or belief. And this is what I said to you at the beginning, that this is especially we're talking about music. We're talking about art. It's a very sense of life response. Yeah. Yeah. And when we're talking about sense of life, William, a story, a piece of farce you submitted uh, really shows how I don't even know if it's philosophy. I, I think it's more sense of life. The sense of life of like the youth has been short circuited or sort of circumvented, or I don't even know the proper word, but it's this idea 40% of Brown University students say they are not straight, as LGBTQ plus population triples in 13 years and is now five times the national average. This is a headline I'm getting from the Daily Mail because, again, I went out of my way to find a source that wasn't any of the sources we were referring to earlier. I'm going to read a little bit from that article. Almost 40% of Brown University students are not straight, according to a survey which found the proportion who identified as LGBTQ plus has tripled since 2010. The poll found that 38% of students said they were not straight compared to just 13% 13 years ago. That new figure is more than five times the national rate. The survey carried out by the student paper, the Brown Daily Herald, also found that those who identified as LG, of those who identified as LGBTQ+, only 22.9% of students described themselves as homosexual, down from 46 in 2010. 
the proportion of students identifying as other sexual orientations has increased by 793% over the same period. And this is what I want (laughs) to... Well, would it be gay if it's not, if they're not homosexual? What what term would we use? Uh, And that's what I want. Super straight. So, so as all that's left is the super straight people. Right. And that's what I want to talk to you about. And that's what I want to ask you about in regard to this. Isn't this just a word game by creating incredibly specific labels? We are one obscuring what's really going on and two making communication impossible. And what I mean by that is when it used to be a binary before, right? You were gay or you were straight. And even then it wasn't that it was, you know, there were bisexuals as well. Although interestingly, did you notice how this article said more people are identifying as bisexual, but bisexual sexual activity is not increased. So they say they're bisexual, but they still are only participating in heterosexual sexual activity. Well, and that, that, I mean, we know, we know that, uh, just from sexual behavior studies that, uh, that that's true, right? Like that from sexual, from objective sexual behavior studies, it's the amount of strictly homosexual is very low. Bisexual, it's sexually, very sexually dimorphic. And so for women, it's a little higher, but for men, it's very low. And then the straight is like 90% plus, right? So the fact that this is 44%, Justin, shouldn't they be suing, the straight people be, sh- be suing, uh, saying that the admission standards for, uh, for Brown is uh, uh, culturally insensitive and uh, uh, oppressive towards straight people? Uh, they should, but I don't know if they'd win that case because the argument against them is going to be, well, it's been oppressive otherwise for years, so we're just course correcting. Well, that, that, yeah. we have a Supreme Court case that we can uh, we can point at now, but I I think there's a couple things going on here, Justin. The first one is the ever changing labels that you brought up, and this effort to be more and more inclusive to make the movement bigger and bigger. This is a right. political machine. It is not a identity or a lifestyle or anything that it, anything that it used to be, even when, when I was in college, right? This is a group that you need to be a part of in order to exercise political power. And it's super easy to say, oh, I'm queer. Oh, I'm bi. Oh, I'm gender fluid. Oh, I'm whatever. And then be in the in click. And right. now you've got political power and victimhood, all the things you need in, in today's uh, college campus. Well, right. Well, you just said they're socially incentivized to join the group, and then that gives the group power to exert its will. Yeah. Yeah. And some of it has to be fear, Justin. Like, yes. think of think of the – I'm not saying it's right because, you know, the left eats their own more than anyone else. But think of being just a, you know – regular dude in college today and and actually saying oh i'm not any of these lgbtqia plus lmnop two-spirit bullshit like are you gonna get any dates are you gonna be included in any social function right like what 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 outlets do you have see uh, if you're not if you're not in the top percent of you know male uh uh handsomeness right now i I, i'm not in the youth, I, I you know I uh, I'm not in a college, so I can't say how the dating yeah. 
scene is. However, I kind of disagree with you a little bit here because I'm going to use the metaphor you always use and I'm going to apply it to my own life. William, my degree from FU says you are 100% correct. Not what I said. I definitely am saying you're not 100% correct. (laughs) But I I appreciate you. My my argument, yeah. Right. Well, I'm going to use your metaphor. And you're talking about this being a religion, right? It's social justice and wokeness being a religion. Yeah. Well, I sort of think it's the same thing here if you don't participate in this. And what I mean by that is the only time I ever think about God is when a philosophical argument comes out about God or someone brings up God or a discussion like this happens. <laughs> so so you're thinking, so let me, let me make a joke here. So you're thinking the only time these folks are bisexual or queer or uh, uh, gender fluid is when they're asked about it? No, I am saying the people who identify in this way are like people who believe in God, who are super Christian or super whatever religion, you know, super Muslim, super Jewish. And it's something they have explicitly made the forefront of their brain. However, the people who don't make this the forefront of their brain and just sort of do what they feel or what is normal or natural for them. I think Matt can masquerade enough because people don't go around and ask, you know, do you believe in God? And I think it's the same thing here. It's, it's, it's considered rude to out someone still. Yes. It's considered rude to assume still. Yes. So I think someone who is straight can get away with or buy or whatever, you know, you could just be gay, right? Like, William, I don't think you go around and think about being gay all day. I just think that you see a man and you're attracted to him. Am I wrong? That's absolutely right. Gay to me, I I, I wish I could make a giant sign uh, or T-shirt that said gay, not queer. Uh, right. And and because it it's it, the, the, the political part is the part I reject. Right. Right. And I think that's the difficulty with fighting this battle, because I think people who are non-political and are just sexually active for whatever they're interested in. I I don't think it's, it's hard for them in the sense that, you know, it's not hard for me to associate with people who are super Christian. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, and I think that there's also, I think there was a, there was a lot, at least when I was in college, I know this was a hundred years ago. um, There was a lot of in the community, so to speak, in the gay community, there's a lot of rejection of the labels in general, Right you know, like, like meaning like why put labels on, on people and, you know, uh, try to decide if they're gay or bi, right. Is, is just one concrete example. So you can latch onto it. Right. Like, you know, Hey, they're, you know, they like dudes. That's it. Right. Or they don't like dudes. That's it. Right. Right. But it, it was not, now there's all this 47 different flags. Right. And, and which ones do you belong to? And are you demisexual and blah, blah, blah. None of that, all that labeling is being latched onto as giving some sort of higher meaning to people's life. It gets back to the pseudo self-esteem, right? I belong to this collective and this super special collective. And I'm so special because I'm, I'm, I know this like 47 syllable label that applies to me. And, and, and you are not, in the higher religion, right? It's the uh, it's the Scientology thing, right? Like you haven't been read into the secret higher uh, 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 echelons of this 
Um, and so therefore you're, you're not a member of this group. Yeah. And another way of thinking of this is you guys were rejecting labels because you were focusing on your own individuality and your own experience. Yeah. This is necessarily secondhanded. And what I mean by that is labels serve two purposes, communication and understanding. So a label is to very easily say to somebody, you know, if a gay guy hits on you, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm straight. That's a very easy way. Although I found that you just say, I'm sorry, I'm not interested. Like, who cares if they think you're straight or not? But that's what I'm talking about, about the second-hand nature of it, right? Yeah. So if you said, hey, I'm straight, I don't think that's really second-handed, right? But the fact that you need to say it at all means you feel bad and you want to justify to the other person. Although to a certain extent, like empathy does sort of require some sort of like, you don't just want to be like, no, I'm not interested because then like maybe they think you think they're ugly or mean or something. So there is a sort of empathy there. So it's, it's a very tough line, but well, I think, I think today, I think Justin, I think that's a great point. Just, just pause for a second. I think today you saying, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm straight would be considered rude. Right. Yes. Whereas, whereas like just to contrast it, you know, again, back in college, just saying, Oh, I'm not interested or I'm straight. There wouldn't be the moral baggage with it. But I think today saying I'm straight, there's a moral baggage on both sides of it. Right. There's the judgment of the person. And then there's the, Oh, you've said something about like being straight. You've just like, all of a sudden you have all this baggage about straight being better or something, right? Right. Well, that's where like trans exclusionary radical feminist comes from and things, but that's the point I'm making, right? It's secondhanded when you start worrying about labels this much. And it's also intended to divide. It's intended to divide labels are supposed to be, Oh, okay. I need to understand what this concept is. I mean, a word is a label. A word is a label on some sort of concept in reality. Oh, we can, very easily say this group is trees. Oh, okay. Well, we need to understand the trees in Hawaii versus the trees in Massachusetts. So we have pine trees and palm trees, right? Because that's how it works scientifically in order to understand horticulture, agriculture, environmentalism, all of these different scientific approaches, which are important to understanding the world. Well, it's the same thing with communicating things about people and each other. But when you do it on this level, it's only intended to divide. And this is what we're seeing with the Brown University study. These people are completely divided. Yeah. And it's, I I think, just to bring the point home, uh, back to the gay, not queer thing, is whether or not, like, because we've attached all this cultural baggage to the labels, they become useless in communication because, you know, I'm constantly having to over communicate about the fact that I am not politically gay. Right. Yeah. And, and that become that I talk more about that than, uh, than like you said, thinking about whether I'm gay or not, it's whether if people find out I'm gay, they're going to assume all this political baggage. Correct. And that's exactly the metaphor I was talking about with the religion and the atheism argument as well, because it's the same thing, right? If someone finds out you're Christian, there's a lot of baggage they assume comes yep. with it as well. Yep. So it's interesting that that 
uh, has that parallel there. And that's the danger with all these labels and all these groupings, because it no longer becomes about the point of communication and understanding. It becomes about division. And interestingly, I think we can kind of apply this discussion, this concept that we're talking about to the movie we're going to discuss this week with the way people approached it. So we'll give our review and then we'll talk a little bit about the response to it as well. Let's get into it in The Hopeful Bromantic with JML. As always, if you'd like to continue the conversation with us during the week, you can do so by joining our Discord channel. Just go to themidside.com and themidside.com slash podcast. Click on any episode link. And in that episode post, you will find the link or code to join the Discord. Love to hear from you. Share some farce with us during the week. Share some trailers. Respond to trailers. Or you can listen live. Midsider Lucid just joined right now when we're about to discuss Oppenheimer. I don't know if he had like a spidey sense about like, oh, they're going to discuss the Nolan movie this that just came out. So obviously this week I saw Oppenheimer. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, I am seeing Barbie after recording this episode. I do not have high hopes for that movie, though. Uh, I tried to avoid spoilers and the trailers were pretty innocuous, William, but there's been a lot of like revealing things said about Barbie since it's come out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I too try to avoid spoilers, but, uh, the, from the reviews, uh, that, uh, that well, not really reviews from some of the tweets that have been in my timeline, yes. I have a feeling, uh, that our fears will be realized. Right. And I will go see it still and come to my own opinion. Right. But this is why, look, this is why I hate, the culture of everyone has to respond to everything immediately because look, it's important to go and see things on your own and make your own judgment. And if you are being pushed in a certain direction before you see something, then you're being shaded and the way you see the movie is going to be changed. The way you engage with the piece of art is going to be changed because you're always going to have that perspective of another person influencing you and i kind of feel bad that for barbie i'm gonna have that but at the same time i did have that for oppenheimer already because there were people already praising oppenheimer and saying specific things about oppenheimer that i expected to be said but i do i will say this though william one of the things i saw about oppenheimer ahead of time was people saying it's all talking and I didn't find that to be true at all. Because you know yeah. you know how I make fun of the show Billions? I just call it people sitting in rooms talking to each other. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, that's yeah. all it is. I, I found this to be a very visual movie. Did you find Oppenheimer to just be just people talking? Uh, no. I think uh, so. My, uh, my business partner came. Uh, he was helping me pack. And that was our activity to get out of the heat uh, at the end of the a day of uh, loading. And uh, both of us coming out of the movie said that it was 
as far as a Nolan movie, there was a lot less in sort of action, right? As in uh, action, but that, you know, not to put words in his mouth because he wouldn't have characterized it this way, but, but it was still very visual. Things were told visually. And so I think that it's quite an achievement to tell something so complex, so visually and not have big, you know, action set pieces, right? It's something that we don't see a lot in Hollywood currently. Yeah. This is definitely a drama. This is definitely a drama, not an action movie. And what you're saying kind of goes to the review that I wrote for it. So my one sentence review on Letterboxd is Nolan removes the fantastical foundation he usually builds his films upon to show his audience just how real and impactful the ideas he grapples with are. So to be clear, I'm giving this a five out of five, a highest rating, so romantic. This is the best movie of the year so far by a large margin because of exactly what William is talking about here is this is showing two things. This movie starts out with one storyline is color and it's called fission. And one storyline is black and white and it's called fusion. So fission tearing things apart is Oppenheimer reflecting on his life, dissecting it and thinking through how things became the way they became and what the meaning of his life is. Whereas fusion is the government trying to come together and create a society and come to a judgment on Oppenheimer. And this is through the lens of a confirmation hearing for a character played by Robert Downey Jr. uh, Strauss, who was involved with atomic energy during the whole creation of the atomic bomb. And what's interesting about all this is, as I just said, with the perception versus reality type approach to things, this plays with all of the things no one talks about all the time, right? The effect of scientific achievement, the effect of uh, brilliance, heroism, right? And perception. And what does it mean to be good and bad and, To me, there's a lot of similarities in this movie and The Prestige. A lot of similarities there, which isn't a surprise because The Prestige also featured a great scientific mind in Nicholas Tesla. Yeah, it's interesting the way you described, you know, the two storylines. I think as I was experiencing it, it felt... Like, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't really get it until after the movie, but my first sort of impression of the black and white section is like, oh, this is being told from a different perspective, not Oppenheimer's perspective necessarily. Right. Whereas the color stuff I felt was very much, we were in Oppenheimer's head and it wasn't until after the movie that I really grasped more about that, that, why, how that technique was telling the two different stories. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that's one of the successes of it. Because when you talk about visually, and this is what I was trying to wrap back to, is visually, I think the color storyline is much more impactful and memorable. Like, I think the black and white one is more memorable sort of technically 
as far as like storyline, this is what happened. And I think that's intentional, right? It's almost like, obviously it's still fictionalized, but it's almost like a documentary. It's almost like a news report. It's like, this is what happened. But what you really remember the visuals with is the the color storyline. Because you're, you're there. You're living the, the moment with Oppenheimer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I, I agree. I agree with you on the rating. I think um, I haven't seen as many movies as you obviously this year, but this is definitely one that I can rewatch. And uh, there's, there's a bit of, uh, there's a lot of interesting things to think about, which I'm sure we'll get into, but there's a lot of interesting things to think about. It really transports you to the culture of the time, which I think is not something that we've seen in a lot of, you know, a lot of the most popular movies, uh, at least the last few years have been all fantastical. And this one is so grounded. I mean, there's been a, a lot of biopics I know, like mostly musical biopics, right. But, but really getting into a character's and individual's head and life and their moral struggle. Like when's the last time Hollywood's put out a movie like this? I don't, I think it's been a long while. The the movie this most reminded me of was First Man by um, Damien Chazelle. And when I was watching this, I actually had a thought. And I was like, this is the movie Chazelle was trying to make with First Man, but wasn't able to make. And yeah. the reason yeah. I think Chazelle wasn't able to make it is he more was worried about judging Neil Armstrong. Whereas this movie was more worried about showing... Oppenheimer judging himself. And I think that's what's so compelling about this story is conflict wise, you could very easily make this, you know, man versus nature or man versus man. But this was really man versus self. Even the Robert Downey storyline, Strauss trying to get confirmed, it was him against his nature, his nature of a politician and how he did himself in. Whereas Oppenheimer was worried about his effect on the world. And I I think that's very interesting that you take this event that did change the world fundamentally and you make it a man versus self story. I think that's very, very interesting. Yeah, it definitely, it's definitely something I, I can't recall really being achieved in a biopic film, right? You, you know, you have sometimes characters talk about how they see their, their choices, but this was just, just, you really, you, through the visuals, you feel the, the anxiety, the, the, the trouble, the frustration, the concern, right? And I think that's, that's uh, quite an achievement. Well, there's two other ways you, you experience it as well. This achievement, I think, also has to be, first of all, Killian Murphy, his acting, right? So when we talk about the visuals, I don't just mean the cinematography and the directing. Right. I mean Killian yeah. Murphy's acting to show his character, his moral un- unsurety. I'm not sure the word to use here. Moral confusion, right? Uh, his his thoughtfulness almost where he thinks everything through and we'll return to that in a bit when we talk about sort of the politics of the movie and um, also the writing 
And what I mean by that is Christopher Nolan gets a lot of credit as a director, but he was the only one who wrote this. This literally at the end said written and directed by Christopher Nolan. And the wonderful thing is this is not expository dialogue at all. Now, obviously, there's always going to be some element of exposition and dialogue. There necessarily has to be. That's how we communicate with each other. However, he did not have any of the characters say anything didactic. You never had Oppenheimer didactically say anything about, oh, the bomb and the moral implications and things like that. He simply gave his opinion and his concerns in context where it was relevant to. And I think that speaks to the to the success of the movie as well, that you literally are just witnessing what is happening and you're seeing the struggle and you're experiencing the struggle. Yeah, I think One, I think ahead. from some of the reactions I've seen um, now, this is obviously fictionalized, right? No doubt there. But a lot of people who are very interested in the this event and Oppenheimer in particular uh, have had a lot of praise for it, um, for that feeling that, that, uh, that, um, that capturing that so well, capturing those feelings so well. Right. And I think that's another sort of plus on the, uh, on, on Nolan's take, you know, he did a great job of, of highlighting the events and choosing where to tell what parts of the story in order to achieve what, what folks who, are familiar with and look to look and know this event and know Oppenheimer and his life that this fits, uh, not historically accurate, but you know what I'm trying to say, right? Like it fits the, the feeling of the time. Yeah. I, I, I would, I think we would say romantically accurate perhaps. Whereas obviously yeah. this isn't, yeah. uh, this isn't a documentary, right? This is, this is dramatized. This is romanticized. But it's accurate to the ideas, to the human experience, to the choices and their implications is what was accurate. Exactly. I think, that's, that's exactly right. And I think the best way to explain this, William, and I'm interested in, in your experience here. But for me, it was the experience in the theater of when the bomb went off. Now... I don't want to say I was taken out of the moment, but it was an incredibly unique experience. Now, the first thing I want to preface this with before I talk about that directly is we usually go to the movies at night. So we went at 945. The reason we do this is it's usually less busy and there are fewer children. This is the busiest I have seen the movie theater since before the pandemic. After the movie, there were people standing around in the lobby talking about the movie. Before the movie, there were people going to Barbie. There were people going to Oppenheimer. And this bears out with the, the money predictions, right? Barbie's predicted to make like $150 million. Um, Oppenheimer's predicted to make like $120 million or something like that. So the first thing I want to say is I think that this vindicates Nolan and vindicates my defense of Nolan in regards to Tenet. Do you remember, William, when Tenet came out and everyone said Nolan was being immoral for pushing the movie into theaters? He was being immoral yeah. because yep. it was killing people and also because it was making it a financial disaster 
for Warner Brothers. And I defended him and I said, well, his values are movies and going to to theaters and he wants to support that. Well, it is no coincidence that his movie is one of the most successful since returning to theaters. And he is leading the charge still getting people back into theaters. That is not a coincidence. But that leads directly into the experience of watching the bomb explode. Because much was made about the fact that Christopher Nolan does not use CGI. So, first of all, I've always wondered, right, and I do need to look into this more because there were some perceptual things that were ambiguous on purpose in regards to the aftermath of the bomb. I've always wondered why there are not more stories of people who were around the time when the bomb exploded with effects of radiation and effects of the bomb. There are some people who are shown to have skin issues and shown vomiting. However, it's unclear if that's actually happening or if that's something that Oppenheimer is seeing because he's feeling guilty. And I think that the ambiguity is on purpose because, again, this isn't 100% real. But likewise, how does Christopher Nolan film an explosion without CGI, without actually setting off a replication of this explosion right without going out to Los Alamos on himself by himself and making the explosion. I don't know how he did it. I mean, I've read some stuff. I'm not educated enough in the technology in order to explain how he did it. However, I will say that it was realistic enough in the movies because I have not ever in my life experienced that kind of a silence in a movie theater. Now, there are silences in a movie theater where no one's paying attention and no one is causing a problem. But this was like a odd silence to the point that no one was even moving. You could have literally heard a pin drop in that movie theater. And it was, I was aware in the moment of how unique of an experience it was and how much of a triumph that specific part of the movie was. Now, the movie did continue after that because the, the point of the ball, the movie was not just the success of the experiment, but also the effects of it on Oppenheimer and the world. So perhaps a small critique could be that the, that wasn't the climax. However... I don't think that's that's enough of a critique uh, for me to 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 downvote the the movie at all to downgrade the movie at all. Did you yeah. have a, a similar experience in the theater, William? Yeah, I you know I had uh, I I remember the release from that moment, you know, and I think I think that that my experience was very similar to that. I think the other you know getting back to like how this was made. Um, after the movie, we were talking, and uh, I think we actually watched uh, a YouTube video. I don't know if it was put up this by the studio, but someone was breaking down like how Nolan makes these kinds of movies. And um, I don't know, Justin, where, what kind of theater you saw it in. I saw it in 70 millimeter IMAX, so I saw it from film. And uh, and and the whole point, I, why I did it right before, I, fi- I, I figured it was a fitting farewell to LA because. You know, I'd have to drive for hours up here in order to see it in 70 millimeter IMAX um, and and probably have to go like to San Francisco or, you know, uh, 
somewhere like that, right? Um, and one of the things, just to quickly talk about how they make it, they record everything on film. Um, they did use IMAX for cameras for some things and then other cameras for others because IMAX cameras are loud and not suited for every environment. So that's why there were aspect changes, aspect ratio changes um, um, uh, that were used visually as well that no one used. But they scan all the film, edit it digitally in the computer, and then have a machine physically cut the film and put the film together like old school way, right? And that's the print, right? So they're not taking the scan, the computer scan, and re, you know, re, re, you know, analogizing it into film. This is actually all film, um, and so that's that's really really interesting that they do it that way. And and um, you know, it, I think it just goes back to showing Nolan's love for film and filmmaking. And um, but I think I think for me it was. It, the, the other moment I wanted to talk about is when you get back to the black and white storyline, you sort of – you get a, a little prestige-like moment where you're not sure – or at least I wasn't sure – what the – how to feel about things. What, 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 what's going to – like what is the effect, right? Like how, how does you – know, at that point in the story, when you, when you get to that, I guess you would kind of call it the third act of the, of the black and white story – you're you're left in that that anxiety and ambiguity is there and and it's 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 getting worse and worse until you have that reveal of 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 Oppenheimer's uh, and the scientists you know preventing the uh, the nomination I guess that's a spoiler. There's walkers in the barn and Lori's pregnant. But but you don't. Oh, there I, you spoil I, I didn't history. have any idea. I, well, I didn't have an idea where they were going to go, right? Like, I, I was like, yeah. well, what's going to happen, right? And not in a, like, oh, I'm bored, what's going to happen? It was like, what does this all mean? How is this tying together? What, what does this mean for him, right? Well, to, to, to loop it back to the prestige, as you said, and Nolan's sort of style, you're talking about the turn. You're talking about where Nolan waited in this movie. He hesitated intentionally to increase the tension on the turn. Now, again, the turn yeah. is in the magic yep. trick where what you thought was real isn't real. And then you get the prestige after that where you're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Right. And when Nolan made the prestige, he was showing how he makes his movies. And improbably, he has that turn moment in this movie where. And I won't say what was said, but it's revealed what was in a conversation between Oppenheimer and Einstein. Now, this is completely fictionalized. Yeah. Right. From yeah. what I've read, the, the, this conversation didn't actually happen. But that becomes the turn in the movie. This becomes the Nolan S twist, which was surprising that Nolan had still had a reveal and a twist in this movie. But then that sort of set things in a, a certain moral direction. And this is also William a great place to start talking about people's reaction to this movie because yeah. the I think people are approaching this movie very politically where they're not looking at the artistry of it and they're allowing the content of the movie to be shaded, their perception of the content to be shaded by whatever perspective they have. And what I mean by that is, first of all, there's been the 
accounts that this movie is a white supremacist movie. First of all, there's <laughs> somebody saying that what about the displaced people in the Los Alamos region? Uh, apparently, there were Hispanos living there that the government kicked Thanos. out. Yeah, Thanos. No, Hispanos, as a, as opposed to Latinos, right? People from from Spain. <laughs> the Mexican Thanos was there. <laughs> <laughs> I looked up this word. I had never heard that word before, but I looked it up as a legitimate word, right? But then I also okay. did research for like 45 minutes. Yes, there was a school there of, it's like a ranching school teaching people who live there to, to ranch, how to be ranchers. And the government bought that school in order to, that's where the people were housed to were the scientists and their families at Los Alamos. That's part of why they wanted it because in the movie, they show them like building the houses from the ground up. But there's one small joke where Oppenheimer's wife is like, there's not a kitchen in this house. Well, that's because it was a school and they had a kitchen elsewhere. So they didn't have kitchens in the houses people lived in. You wouldn't have gotten I didn't get the joke when I watched the movie. I only got it from this stupid research later. But then I was trying to look at like population numbers in Los Alamos since like they said in the 1940s, it grew to 6,000 people. They said in 1943, when it first started, there were 1,500 people there. Now, you could turn around and make the argument, well, there wasn't a real count of how many people were there because the state had just become a state or the government wasn't tracking how many people were there. But there were not enough people there. When we're starting to say, oh, it grew to 6,000, there were 1,500 people there once they started the project, for us to be worrying about displaced people. And I know that may seem kind of callous, William, but do we want to talk about how many people were in Auschwitz and how many Polish people were killed in Auschwitz and how many Jewish people were killed in the Holocaust before we start worrying about Chinese? Yeah, how many Chinese people were killed by the Japanese? Yeah. Right. Let's, before we start let's, worrying let's, about... Let's talk that. Less than a thousand displaced. people. Let's displaced. talk about displaced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about displaced and talk about Korea, the rape of Korea. Yeah, all that stuff right. by the Japanese. Yeah, right. The Philippines. Let's not get into that. Right. We're not talking about any of those things, but we're saying this displacement by the U.S. government caused current problems in New Mexico. It's just if you're going to see these problems, you're going to see them in anything. It's the same thing yeah. about people calling. I mean, I know you like to laugh about this, calling this a white supremacist movie when Oppenheimer is Jewish. Yeah, running, running from, literally running from the Nazis, right? And they talk about that. Yeah, he's in Germany early in, in this movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he he met uh, Heisenberg, who worked for the Nazis. Who was it was hilarious because remember Army of Thieves by Zack Snyder, which the main character is German and it takes place in Germany. He played yeah. Heisenberg. Like he yeah. literally looked blonde hair, blue eyes, and he, uh, Oppenheimer had to leave. And it's ridiculous, you know, people are calling this, and they're, they're calling it that because of what we were saying earlier. Individualism, heroism, these are all things that are seen as white supremacists. And this is actually something that Nolan is addressing indirectly in the movie. And what I mean by that is Oppenheimer is said to be very theoretical and not pragmatic throughout the movie. But creating the bomb is where theory meets practice and where Oppenheimer has his most heroic action. 
And it's very interesting throughout the movie that they're showing the more practical people and the more theoretical people. I mean, I would say that Robert Downey Jr.'s character is shown to be more practical, hence the black and white. But that's also why his character is immoral, is he not, William? Because he's yeah. purely practical and he has no theory or philosophy behind what he's Pure doing. Pure pragmatism. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I think that's very intentional on Nolan's part. So I think he is addressing these things. Which also goes to uh, the right's response to this. And when I say the right, I mean like the far right. You sent Armand White's review into our our thread, right? And Armand White is someone who has praised Zack Snyder many, many times. However, here, he hated this movie. He hated this movie. What did you think of his review? I, I don't think he watched the movie. You know, it gets back to what um, what uh, uh, Scott Adams says all the time about you know two films, uh, yes. same or sorry, uh, one film, two you know two interpretations. Uh, this is just such it, it seems so out of uh, I guess in this case right field, right? Yeah, it's because this is my theory. I think it's because of the political content of the movie that he's interpreting it as a left wing movie, and what I mean by that is. A lot of conflict in the movie is that Oppenheimer is open-minded to the point that he went to communist meetings. His brother was a member of the Communist Party. He was romantically and sexually involved with a, a woman who was in the Communist Party. But even that woman at a certain point, played by Florence Pugh, says there's a difference between Das Kapital and the Communist Party. So even she's sort of being more pragmatic there. Now, her exact views are never delineated or anything. But a major conflict is because of his supposed left-wing leanings, he is doubted by the U.S. government. They don't want to give him a security clearance. And eventually they use that to years later afterwards revoke his security clearance. And then you've already spoiled it. Robert Downey Jr.'s character doesn't get appointed, right? He's like the first person not appointed to the to the cabinet since the 20s. And he is a right-wing character shown to be immoral for the way he treats Oppenheimer. And it's shown that one of the people who went against him that wasn't expected to was John F. Kennedy, the senator, the rising senator from Massachusetts. So you couple that ending with the idea that Oppenheimer's misgivings about the bomb and mutual assured destruction and the impending arms race, which are all important moral considerations, right? Anyone who is in favor of war will have seriously thought about the implications of things, right? This is what we were talking about earlier when we were saying, well, yeah, displacing these people isn't ideal, But look at what happens if you don't displace them. So unfortunately, you have to do sort of like a rote numbers calculation. And Mm -hmm. what was he? He was purely theoretical. So this is all a rote calculation to him, right? Oh, what's going to happen in the long run? So not only is he looking at winning this conflict, but he's also looking at, well, what's going to be caused in the long run? So yeah, we may win this conflict, but 
if the bomb does more damage in the long run than the than the short run of this war, have I really won anything? And I would even say that right there sort of encapsulates his moral dilemma, right? I, I think he's making a mistake because I don't think you're responsible. And he actually eventually comes to that point where he says, we only yeah. made the bomb. We're not responsible for the choices afterwards. And I think that's the the sort of mistake he was making. If people improve on your technology or take your technology and do something with it, change it, build on it that you wouldn't have done or you think is wrong, you're not morally responsible for your discovery or technology. But I think that's the mistake that Armand White and people on the right are making about this, that I think they want to label Christopher Nolan a Hollywood leftist by saying, oh, he was being sympathetic to communism. He's being sympathetic to the left. The only sort of distressing thing politically I saw in this movie is when they said, oh, well, fascists, once we win this war, are no longer the greatest threat. Communists are. And I'm just really tired, William, of this dichotomy between communists and fascists, as if this idea of like a group of people self-governing and having equal power could ever exist. Every communist and socialist government, they actually said socialist, they didn't say communist, but every socialist and communist government in the history of the world has been indistinguishable from fascism. So I, I didn't like that that was in there. But again, I don't think that's Nolan putting his opinion in. I think that's how people talk now and how people talked then. And seeing that actually helped me understand why that misunderstanding still exists. Because we've been pulling that misunderstanding since World War II times, which is crazy to me. Yeah, I think think the whole National Review um, uh, review of the movie can just be thrown out. I mean, the guy tries to connect it to the social network and Fincher. And he says here, both Nolan and Fincher exploit the zeitgeist disinterest in what's moral or immoral. And that's what I mean by I don't think he watched the film. Like this whole point of this film is the moral problem that the bomb creates, how the world will change and what's what to do about it, the choices to make to be made based on that. Right. And and to 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 say that he's disinterested in that uh, is it's just, it's not, it's not right. And then there's a, you know, the very next sentence is Kubrick himself might have envied Nolan's ability to inspire Gen X mass murders as in the first screening in Aurora, Colorado of the dark Knight rises. Like what the fuck? Like this is, it reminds me, Justin of, uh, of their review of Ayn Rand in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, because he he's drawing a link between uh, the Joker and the actions in Aurora, and he he draws the line between the Joker and Oppenheimer, and he even says it at the yeah. beginning. He calls it immo- the amoral excitation of Memento, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises, as if those are amoral movies, which, again, they're discussing what it means to be a hero and the morality of it. I mean, if there's any movie that Christopher Nolan has, that's anti-collectivism, it's the dark Knight rises. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and that can't be had at national review. We already know that. Yeah. So very interesting, uh, very interesting responses to this movie. Again, I give this the highest rating. So romantic 
Five out of five stars. Uh, the best movie I've seen so far this year. Going to be hard to top. Oppenheimer. All right, that's the movie that came out this week, along with Barbie, which maybe I'll review next episode. I don't know. We'll see what else I see before then. Uh, but there are other movies that are going to come out into the future. Let's talk about that now. I usually post the trailers in Discord uh, the Saturday before I record. Uh, before we record. I'm sorry, I don't know why I said I, William. Because uh, I'm looking at the trailers right now while I'm talking. I probably shouldn't do that. I probably should wait to load it after. But that's so you can participate. Uh, last edition, we had uh, Midsider. I can't I scroll up here. Midsider Ed Joe gave some great commentary on the trailers, and we included those in Trailer Takedown. So you can do that, or you can listen to us and then watch the trailers, or you can alternate. You watch a trailer, we talk about it. You watch a trailer, we talk about it. Trailer Takedown. First trailer. Dear David is the first of three horror trailers we will be reviewing this week because we got to start getting people excited for horror movies now because the fall is coming, and that's the big horror movie season, obviously, with October and Halloween. Dear David... uh has BuzzFeed in it. And the second I saw that, I was like, really? So apparently this is about a series of tweets where uh, a BuzzFeed writer tweets something and then he starts being haunted by a kid because of an account tweeted at him that's called Dear David or something. I don't know. This didn't look scary to me at all. There was nothing appealing about this at all. Tackle. This is this like some sort of like take on trying to make horror in involving social media. It seemed it seems too it seemed too disconnected and surreal to even make sense to me as well. And I wonder if this is a generational thing, right? Is this their Chucky? Uh, You know, the the kids these days sound like an old man all of a sudden. Is this their Chucky? And I'm just missing it. That, that that was my impression during this entire thing. So, Tackle. Tackle. Second trailer. Perpetrator is a horror movie made by AMC's, the channel, Shudder Imprint, where they make horror movies. And the first, like, 15 to 20 seconds of this trailer looked interesting. It It looked kind of like a throwback and it looked like it had a plot and everything. But then they just started cutting to reviews of the movie with random imagery. And that's when I know you don't have anything worthwhile. If you actually had something worthwhile, you would show the actual movie. You wouldn't just show random imagery. This takes place in a school. And then one of the reviews calls it like a feminist masterpiece or something. I don't know. I just think that, this is going to get hype, but I don't think it, it has anything worthwhile. Tackle. Tackle. Uh, yeah, it, 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 I, if they had just not told me that other people had wrote those reviews, then it might have been interesting. And I think that this is woke marketing. And think of how secondhanded it is, Justin, to spend so much screen time showing you all the people who praised it and what their praise was. So therefore I think this is the, this is the ghostbusters, uh, 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 2015 or whatever treatment, right? 
So, tackle. Ugh, tackle. Third trailer. A Haunting in Venice is Kenneth Branagh's third adaptation of Agatha Christie's Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. Now, this original story isn't set in Venice, but it is sort of about like supernatural affairs and I've seen the first two movies. They're they're decent enough. They're entertaining enough. I had some CG problems with the second one where the CG looked really, really bad. Uh, I don't know how much they're going to do here. Uh, this isn't something I would be super excited about. Uh, it is something, though, that I, I would see in theaters if there was nothing else out that weekend. And it is something that I do think would be entertaining. So this is one that I think I would give a um, Netflix and hug. Netflix and hug. So I haven't seen any of these and this doesn't look bad, but it just doesn't look worth my time. So I am going to give it a very, very light tackle. Tackle. Final trailer. Migration is an animated movie by illumination who created minions which they're sure to tell you like 80 times in this trailer and also did the super mario brothers movie and by the way that looked very tacked on to the trailer they're like wait we have a hit re-edit the trailer to put that in there uh it's about ducks a family of ducks who try to migrate but accidentally go to new york city by accident i don't know why i said accidentally go to new york city by accident it was obvious that's redundant uh but i actually Found this to be very funny, especially when they got to New York City. Uh, Aquafina plays a bird that they kind of befriend. So there's sort of like a Finding Nemo vibe here where the dad befriends the the awkward comedic character in the area they go to. And uh, it was pretty funny. There was one point where I laughed out loud pretty hard at one of Aquafina's lines. So I think this could be Pretty entertaining. Hug. Mm, hug. I think that we live in the darkest of timelines, Justin, because we have Pixar putting out terrible movies and Illumination putting out what appears to be not quite old Pixar level, but could have the potential to be a decent movie. And I know that they grind it out uh, a lot on the on the Despicable Me sort of minion uh, movies, but they've used that bank to give us the Mario movie, which was good. And now this. So, I don't know. This looks like it could be decent. Now, I don't know that I'm going to run out to the theater and see it, but this would be one that I would watch. So, this is a Netflix and hug. Netflix and hug. And I will say the graphics, the animation looks pretty good in this trailer. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That brings us to the end of this trip. What did we learn, William? Uh, I learned that uh, the National Review can be not counted on for any of its reviews. Justin, what did you learn this trip? I learned that uh, apparently I'm a communist sympathizer sympathizer because (laughs) I don't disavow Oppenheimer, the movie or the person. All right. I want to thank everybody for listening. If it wasn't for you, this would just be me talking in the corner of my closet like a crazy person. 
I mean, it still is that. You just make me feel a little bit less crazy. If you want to support the show, you can go to the midside.com slash store, pick up some merch, midside.com slash the cut, pick up my novel, or you can go to the midside.com slash Patreon, the midside.com slash locals. Uh, Patreon is per episode, locals is per month. That's how we keep the lights on. And the best way to grow the show is to tell a female Fred, which reminds me that was another critique I saw of Oppenheimer that no woman speaks for the first 20 minutes. And then within five minutes of a woman speaking, there's sex. So this concludes your journey into the midside. I'm Justin M. Lesneski reminding you that if things get tough, take a step back and witness the farce. Way to step on it, William. You got nothing? I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs>